Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Yeah. I can't think of anything to say. No, uh, it's just a bad time to be a woman but in this country. But besides but that. Then, when hasn't it been? Yeah, no. And we Too don't bad. really have any updates, right? I have a couple, but I'm going to wait till next time. Okay. So should I just get started? Yeah. All right. I don't even, I know nothing. You, so you don't. And there's fun. something special that um, when we get to, it'll be such a, such a surprise for I'm you. I'm so excited. Yeah, okay, it is exciting. My sources for the story are the Bangor Daily News, both recently and many old ones from newspaper.com. November 1963 report that I'll cite when I get to it because it is a long name. There are a couple books that cover some of the things I'm going to talk about now. I've read at least one of them. <laughs> but but, but just uh, the way you said that why it made me laugh yeah i i could tell it made you laugh but <laughs> the reason i'm saying that is i didn't read them for this story because the sources are limited and we're all pulling from the same sources i didn't want them to influence how i wrote this if it sounds familiar to you if you've read one of the books it's simply because we're pulling from the same sources the writing is my own and i'll cite stuff as i go on the story involves very little actual crime but does involve bad decisions death some things that are just plain sad and tragedy the bottom line is that humans particularly unprepared negligent or ignorant ones rarely can beat mother nature oh particularly in the wilds of maine's katahdin its highest mountain and Baxter State Park, which surrounds Katahdin. Just as a default, the point of the story isn't victim blaming, but where people make bad decisions, I'm going to point it out. So that's a trigger warning for all of you who think you're entitled to make bad decisions <laughs> that could end your life or someone else's, and you don't want to hear someone criticize it. If you're listening to this right after it dropped, I'm enjoying a few days off the grid in spectacular Baxter State Park. Though the park has the name state in it, it is not part of the Maine State Park System, which has 48 beautiful state parks and historic sites, as well as less developed public lands. Baxter is an entity unto its own, run by a three-person authority. It is 209,644 acres, basically a vertical rectangle in north-central Maine. It has more than 200 miles of hiking trails, countless streams and ponds, and 55 named mountains, 18 of which are higher than 3,000 feet. The crown jewel is Katahdin. Some people call it Mount Katahdin, but Katahdin means highest peak. So saying Mount Katahdin is like saying the Rio Grande River or something. You know, it's already saying there. mountain, mountain. Right. At 5,268 feet, it's Maine's highest peak. Well, that may not sound big to people who live in the West of the U.S. or Nepal or somewhere. That doesn't mean it's a wimpy mountain. More on that coming up. And just to back me up, National Geographic placed the mountain among its 10 most inspiring summit hikes Ooh. of the world in 2015. Most people probably know it as the northern terminus of the 2,190-mile Appalachian Trail, which starts in Springer Mountain, Georgia, and which we discussed extensively in episode 36, 36. murder on the Appalachian Trail. Yes. Those hiking the Appalachian Trail take the Hunt Trail up Katahdin, but there are four main trails that go to the summit with various offshoots. It has several peaks, Baxter Peak being the highest. There's also Hamlin and Pomola and some other peaks. As I said, Katahdin means highest land in Penobscot, 
and is a sacred place for Maine's Wabanaki people, the Penobscots, Passamaquoddy, Micmac, Abnaki, and Maliseet. According to Penobscot legend, Pomola, the god of thunder, inhabits the mountain and protects it by raining snow, wind, rain, and cold temperatures down on those who dare to try to summit it. When Europeans came to the area a few hundred years ago, the mountain fascinated them. The first white man to climb the mountain was Charles Tyler Jr. in 1804. Henry David Thoreau tried to climb it, getting some advice from Passamaquoddy guide Lewis Neptune before he went up in 1846. And I don't want to get totally started on Thoreau, but he was kind of a wimpy guy. Yeah, like, that's why I snorted. Living at Walden, he went to the Emerson's house for lunch every day. Like, oh, I'm living naturally, but yet I'm going to have Mrs. Emerson cook me lunch. Every-. But we, that's for another day. Anyway. <laughs> I still like Thoreau, but he's just, at the time, only a few white men had climbed to the top. Thoreau wouldn't be one of them. He got as far as Knife Edge, the treacherous ridge that that connects two of the mountain's peaks. Then he headed back down. In his essay on it, he says he didn't want his friends waiting for him down at their campsite by Abel Stream to get anxious. Okay, whatever, Henry. Mm -hmm. Well, he got farther than I ever got. Yeah, I know. In fact, this would be a good time, I should have said it earlier, that we've gone camping up there many times as a family. We first, when I think it was 1975, because it was cheap and our dad liked cheap or free outings, we were yes. never going to go to fucking Disney World or anything yeah, like that. I know. There's a misconception among a lot of people that you only go to Baxter to hike Katahdin. I've never hiked Katahdin. Yeah. I never planned to hike Katahdin. Baxter Park is absolutely beautiful. When I go later this week, I'll be at South Branch Pond Campsite. I love South Branch Pond. I know it's in the northernmost part of the park. There's a beautiful pond. And I plan to pretty much maybe kayak a little, sit around, go for some short walks, read and eat and enjoy nature. Part of it is I'm not going on any strenuous or even semi-strenuous hikes in the woods without somebody with me. Yeah. And not because I'm afraid of getting attacked, but because, well, you'll find out why not. But in some ways, it's gotten crazy the amount of people who go who want to go. On the other hand, I think especially people in Maine, I'm stunned sometimes at the lack of knowledge or ignorance people have about it and that they think you only go if you're going to hike Katahdin. Our neighbor, Mr. Laflem, back in the 70s told my parents that it's hell to get there, but once you're there, it's Shangri-La, and he was right. Percival Baxter, the governor of Maine in the early 20th century, was a lover of the outdoors and also had a fascination with the mountain. He first visited the park in 1903, and as president of the Maine Senate, then as governor, he tried to get the Maine legislature to make it into a protected state park. His concern was real. Neighboring New Hampshire was building an auto road up 6,200-foot Mount Washington, (sighs) and Baxter recoiled at the idea of what development of the Katahdin area would bring. Although I have to say, there are two totally different types of mountains and areas. A group did try to build a road up Katahdin back then. But it's a whole different mountain, and it proved impossible to do. Good. Lucky for Baxter and everyone else. When he was no longer in office in the mid-1920s, he began buying up land around the mountain and the mountain itself, and in 1931 donated 5,960 acres, including most of Katahdin, to the state for a park. One of the provisos of the donation was that the park would stay forever wild. As the park's website points out, Preserving nature and wildlife is the priority. Humans 
are not. I just want to interrupt you to ask you, I just remember last time I stayed there, you weren't even supposed to be playing it like you couldn't play a radio or something. Right. And that's still... true. And I'll, and I'll kind of get okay. to that, but that's true. It's carry in, carry out. There are no garbage receptacles. There's no potable water. They have very basic outhouses. There are quiet hours after 10, but even before that, you're not allowed to have a radio. You won't get cell service there. A lot of people who visit or want to visit the park don't read the website and don't get that. You'd think they would since it's so easy to research these days, but check out TripAdvisor, Trusted Reviewer, or some other review sites. There are the inevitable one-star reviews. It blows my mind. People give me Baxter State Park a one-star review. Most of them complain about the fact that they couldn't bring in their dog. It's a posted rule, and it has been a rule for 100 years. Well, yeah. Because it's a wildlife sanctuary, and you can't have dogs in a wildlife sanctuary, aside from the fact that dogs are noisy. People either don't understand that, or they don't bother to find out. Many complain about condition of the tote road. All the roads in Baxter are gravel or dirt roads. The speed limit's 10 miles an hour. They're not paved because paving destroys the environment. They're unpaved roads. You're told about this. It says on the website, but people still complain. It's a dirt road, and there are a lot of complaints about people who got a flat tire and it ruined their vacation. Uh-huh. And they brought it to a garage, and the guy says, you're the third one I've had today. I'll just say this, that in all my visits to Baxter, and my, I've never had a car that's been in good condition in my entire life. Yeah. I've never we gotten, when we were kids, that's I've for never sure. gotten a flat tire driving the tote road in Baxter Park. It probably depends how fast you're going. Right. Again, the website is pretty clear that it's a dirt road with a speed limit of 10 miles an hour. I also saw complaints from people who didn't understand why they couldn't bring in their RV, which is another posted rule. The reason you can't is because the roads are very narrow and it's not RV camping. I saw one post where someone complained that they wanted to drive around the tote road and not get out of their car and they had their dog in the car so they weren't let in. Just an (laughs) FYI, You won't see much scenery from the tote road. It goes the entire perimeter of the park. I think in total, it's 40 miles long, but you mostly drive through dense trees. trees, It's not like driving like the road to the sky in Glacier National Park or something. You're driving on- Or even on Acadia. Right. You've got that loop road. Right. So there are scenic parts, but it's not that scenic, which you would know if you looked at the website. Reviewers also complained about not being let in because the park was full or parking areas being full. The park limits how many people can use it because, again, it's not about you. It's about nature. And that's something else that's pretty clear on the website. They do limit how many people can be in there. People complain about that. But again, there's a reason. Those are all the rules meant to protect nature. There's a whole other set of rules that are meant to protect people from themselves. Hmm. A few years ago, I read a review or blog post, I can't remember which, and couldn't find it for this story. It was about 10 years ago in which a young man in his 20s and his buddy went up to the park from Massachusetts to climb Katahdin. The ranger, if I remember right, wouldn't let them because it was too late in the day. They were wearing shorts and t-shirts and light shoes, didn't have proper provisions or equipment, etc. The guy who wrote the thing was damning in his criticism of the ranger and the park. The general theme being he knew what he was doing, and even if he didn't, it wasn't the ranger's business to tell him what he could and couldn't do. When you go, when you get to the gate, there's a ranger there. If you have a reservation, great. If you don't, you're trying your luck, but the ranger will ask you what you're going to do. If you have a dog in your car, if you have an RV or something, he's not going to let you in. If you're camping, and when you get to the campground, there are also rangers who live in cabins at the campgrounds. 
and you sign in with them and they also talk to you about what your plans are. Yes, so do. expect for them to know who you are, to know you're there. And there are reasons for that, which we will get to. They're kind of like bouncers at an exclusive right. club. But they're there to protect you. Too. No, they're very nice. Yes, they are. Thoreau, after he left Katahdin, wrote that Pomola is always angry with those who try to climb Katahdin. Mm. In his essay, Katahdin, which I've linked on our website, he wrote, someone climbing the mountain will find, quote, vast titanic inhuman nature has got him at a disadvantage caught him alone and pilfers him of some of his divine faculty she does not smile on him as in the plains she seems to say sternly why came ye here before your time (laughs) this ground is not prepared for you is it not enough that i smile in the valleys i have never made the soil for thy feet this air for thy breathing these rocks for thy neighbors I cannot pity nor fondle thee here, but forever relentlessly drive thee hence to where I am kind. Why seek me where I have not called thee, and then complain because you find me but a stepmother? Shouldst thou freeze or starve or shudder thy life away, here is no shrine nor altar nor any access to my ear. But why take Thoreau's word for it? (laughs) Tonight, via pre-recorded message, we have a very special guest. Our brother... And Katahdin hiker and Becky's twin, Billy. Hi, I'm Bill Milliken from Portland, Maine, and I have climbed Mount Katahdin three times. The first time in June of 1983 when I was 17, the week after I graduated high school, and I've climbed it twice recently in my 50s. Baxter State Park is a park of rules and regulations on purpose. It was left by Governor Baxter to be forever wild. And so they strictly maintain that. It's also to keep people safe because people die up there or get injured very easily. People don't understand that uh, nature is unforgiving and certainly Mount Katahdin is unforgiving. We've been going up to Baxter State Park since I was a little kid. I remember uh, 1975 or something, we were in line at the gate to get in in our car and a big RV right in front of us got turned around. They don't allow RVs in the park as well as dogs, uh, trailers. It's an experience that some people don't like because it's inconvenient, I suppose. But uh, I think that's one of the reasons why it's so popular as well, because the park strictly uh, maintains the quality of experience. My first climb when I was 17 in 1983, uh, we went up the Dudley Trail. The Dudley Trail actually recently had been closed for many years, and I believe it just reopened. Back then it was open. It was the first mountain I really had ever climbed. And you're going up thousands of feet in one take. You you keep thinking you're seeing the summit and you don't. I mean, it's just like uh, these fall summits or whatever. And you just go and go and go. We went up to Pomola Peak. And then there's the chimney, which is a deep gash that goes down and then back up again. And then there's Knife Edge. Katahdin is an old uh, volcano crater. And so it's shaped like a bowl. And so Knife Edge is basically the rim of the bowl. It's kind of rounded, and it goes from Pomola Peak to Baxter Peak, which is the highest peak. And it's quite narrow, getting its name. On one side, you look down into the bowl where Chimney Pond is in a ranger cabin. And on the other side, you look out south, you see the Penobscot River, miles and miles of trees, distant mountains. And if it's a nice day, you'll see Moosehead Lake. We went across it very quickly. Uh, My friends thought I was on speed or diet pills or something um, because I almost ran across it. I was 17 and quite lithe and able to do it. My biggest memory of that, two biggest memories. One, there's bugs up there 
really big ones. In fact, I have some photographs of me up there and you can see the bugs in the photographs, the little blurs. Um, they're huge, they're crawling over everything, they're flying around and they were big. Don't know what kind of bugs they were. I also remember that someone defecated in the middle of Knife Edge um, going across, someone had defecated right there on the trail. Thankfully, Knife Edge, it's not like you have to scale it or you're in danger of falling off. You're really not. It's, it's wider than that. But if you have a fear of heights or something, you definitely don't want to do it. Baxter State Park also requires, they require everyone to carry a headlamp or a, a, light, a flashlight of some sort at all times, day or night, when you're hiking. You also have to sign in when you leave for a, a, a hike or anything. They have, at the trailheads, they have sign-in books. And if uh, you don't sign back out or whatever, uh, the rangers will come looking for you because um, once the sun goes down, it can get really hairy up there. One time in a recent climb, we saw a bear on Knife Edge. It looked more like a dog. It was not very big and it was at a distance and it kind of crossed over and then went down. And basically, if you've ever been on Katahdin, it's like a big pile of rocks. And so there, the, you could see it you know, going over the rocks was kind of interesting. I don't know what a bear would be eating up there because it's quite high and desolate. When you climb, you, you have a good 10 or 12 hour hike ahead of you. I don't care which trail you take. Um, there's multiple trails up or down and you can take a combination. You certainly want to take plenty of water. Water is probably the most important. You want to have good foot gear. I know people who've ruined their feet. Climbing Katahdin years later, their feet still hurt from that hike. And you say, oh, it's only a mile. Mount Washington's higher. I've done the whites, whatever. Nothing compares to Katahdin. It's very rugged and it will just take it out of you. One of the recent climbs we did is getting later in the day, and we still had a number of hours. In fact, we didn't get back. It was getting dusk when we got back to our campsite, but we are up on Knife Edge. We're just approaching the chimney and then Pomola Peak, and from Pomola, there's the Helon Taylor Trail, which is like three miles and takes us back to our campsite. We're almost at the chimney, and there's some guys coming the other way. They look like they're from New York City or something. They're older, and they're wearing like sneakers and like a a, a velvet jacket and stuff. They were not at all, and they were going in the opposite direction. It's like, where are they going? I mean, it's going to be dark in a couple hours. So I don't know what ever happened to them, but they were going in the wrong direction. And I can't imagine that they got anywhere safe after it got dark. When it gets dark, it is dark. So hopefully they brought their headlamp or flashlight like the Baxter State Park rules require you to. When we got to the chimney, this at the same time, there was a fellow with, with us, um, not with us, but at the same time, he took it, and it's like it's like 15 or 20 foot drop. You go down, then you got to go back up again to get to Pomola Peak. He took his backpack off and threw it down <laughs> to the bottom and climbed down and he broke he broke his phone. And it's like, we're just looking at him. It's like, what are you throwing your backpack down there? When we crossed Knife Edge, we had like 40 mile an hour winds and the rangers were suggesting maybe not to do it. It was a nice day, but you could really see the clouds whipping across the top of the mountain. But when we got up there, it was fine because the wind kind of pushed us against the against the cliff face. So it wasn't blowing us off. That sounds kind of scary, but it actually really wasn't. So if you're going to climb Katad, another thing you need to know is the campsites fill up very quickly. Um, you need to make your reservation months in advance, or you can do a day trip, in which case you would have to uh, rent a campground outside of the park and come in. They open the gates, I think at six in the morning. The tote road, you go 25 miles an hour, um, and it's very slow. So you're better off getting a campsite in the park um, so you can start your hike early because you will be hiking all day long. So those are my experiences with ba Baxter and particularly Mount Katahdin. It's a wonderful mountain, but it's dangerous. It's rugged. It's unforgiving. 
definitely you want to keep an eye on the weather and keep an eye on your water. Keep an eye on your foot gear. Keep an eye on the time. Don't leave too late in the morning. We were going to, at one point, a friend of ours, we were going to climb to Baxter Peak and back. He wanted to do the knife edge. And it's like, well, you know, he's going, only it's only a mile. Well, we were up there, and he did about halfway and turned around and came back, and we barely made it down in time. Just because it's a mile, it's a mile of maybe some of the hardest hiking you're ever going to do. And you really have to pace yourself, and you have to... Uh, know your time, know your turnaround time, and be ready to turn around. If, if you don't finish your goal, that's okay, because you don't want to get stuck up there after dark, believe me. I think one of the biggest problems people have when they climb Katahdin is underestimating it. You do not underestimate Katahdin. I know it's only a mile high. Mount Washington's a thousand feet higher. The Rockies are thousands and thousands of feet higher. But the biggest mistake people make is underestimating it. Underestimating the rigor that it's going to put your body through. Underestimating the time it's going to take. Underestimating the energy required to get up there and get down. And getting down is really difficult. Uh, you think after you get to the peak, it's all fine. But then getting down can really be a killer. <laughs> and that's where knees and ankles and everything else go because you're pounding as you're going down and you're going down thousands of feet within a mile or a couple miles. So it's quite steep up, but it's also quite steep down. In these modern times, people don't understand nature is there and they will be rudely awakened that human beings are frail, mortal animals stuck on this huge rock pile and it simply does not care. I also asked Billy to talk about a story he told me once about that high school trip he took in June of 1983. And one thing that's interesting is you'll see that our story or part of our story tonight takes place at the same time. His story is very different from the one I'm telling tonight, but it's just interesting he was there. And also it's just a good old classic main teenage from the 70s and 80s story that I think you guys will enjoy. So here's that. I'm actually on the plane in Minneapolis, getting ready to go to, uh, fly to Denver, going to see our niece Adele, and then drive down to Albuquerque to see some ballooning friends. So anyway, a week after high school graduation in 1983, I believe is I graduated June 9th, so it would have been the week after, myself and three friends decided to go hike Katahdin me, Kevin Maxim, Matt Elbert, and John Wenzel. Kevin had just bought a car. It was a used car. I'm not sure what it was, kind of a clunker thing, but we're going to drive up in that. And so we all gathered together, put our bags in the car, and we're driving up. And Matt looks to Kevin. They're sitting in the front seat. Or Kevin looks to Matt and says, I forgot, oh, I forgot them. And Matt goes, no way. He goes, yeah. And John and I in the back seat going, forgot what? forgot to grab the license plates off his old car and put them on the new car that he just bought. So we pulled it at some country store somewhere, borrowed a cardboard and a Sharpie, and they made up a number, a license plate number on the spot. We put it on the car. So anything, we're doing fine. We're driving up there, going up 95, tipping beers. And, uh, you know, we just graduated high school and feeling pretty good. And we get off the exit in Medway, which is the exit to get to the south entrance of Baxter and uh, we immediately get pulled over by a cop for speeding and I'm sure he sits there and just or would sit there and just like tag everybody because it was the basically the uh, entrance to the south part of the park so I'm sure 
it's just fruitful ground for a, a cop giving speeding tickets. And so, of course, he ran the plate, and is the number of some lady who lived half across the state. I have no idea who she was because they had just made it up. Meanwhile, we're standing on the side of the road. I, I think the state trooper got there, too. And John is, like, dumping. He had a bag of marijuana, and he's dumping it into the dirt, trying to kick it in with his feet so they didn't notice, which they didn't. Oh, and the vehicle, uh, there's no inspection sticker. And actually, I have a photograph of it, and there's a taillight out, too, if you look at it. So Matt got a ticket for driving an unregistered vehicle. Kevin got a ticket for allowing his unregistered vehicle to be driven. Matt also might have been gotten cited for transportation of alcohol by a minor. John was the oldest. He was like 19. So he got busted for furnishing the alcohol because they just picked the oldest person. I didn't get any ticket because I was the youngest. I had no connection to the car and I was sitting in the back seat. So we had a big pot of stew that we were going to eat. We are going to be staying at a Roaring Brook campground that night. The car got impounded and taken to some, uh, some garage in Millinocket. So we we're all clucking up as much as we can take. We're still like 20, 30 miles from the park and we're going to have to uh, hitchhike the rest of the way and so we're trying to eat the as much of the stew as possible and we loaded up as much as we could in our bags we hitchhiked to the park we stayed at cabins at chimney pond and kevin he carved his name into the uh, lean, not cabins lean tos we were in a lean to in chimney pond and so we did the hike which i described earlier um, we got back down and there's a ranger waiting for us he yelled at us, made Kevin scratch out his name uh, that he had carved in the day before, and he asked us where we were going. And we said, well, we're going to be hiking up to Russell Pond for a couple of days. And the ranger said, well, I'm going to call ahead and warn them about you troublemakers or whatever. And as far as I know, he didn't because the rangers up at Russell Pond are very nice and never mentioned it. And we got down. We were famished. We had no food. We had some instant potato, like what is that? The old potato buds or whatever. And so we mixed that up with water and... and and ate it just like that no salt butter or anything and it's probably the best food i've ever eaten in my life we were so hungry after that we're sitting there and actually a moose came walking by i think i have photographs of the moose too came walking up looked at us and we were in like a picnic table underneath a canopy thing or something kevin decided to leave and go down and retrieve his car from this garage where it had been impounded at in millinocket and so we ended up going to Russell Pond, the three of us. And a couple days later, uh, Kevin apparently made it down to Millinocket, no problem. Got his car. No one was around. Drove it home. Either put the new plates on that car or drove his old car up and picked us up a couple days later. So that's, that's the end of that story. So now that we've heard from Bill, now for our story. Ooh. Okay. I thought that was a story. Yeah, I know. I know there was crime. There was there was more crime Lots in that story. Probably I this. know. And he's a lawyer. You know, that's yeah. the thing now. Although now you're going to get him disbarred. Well, he's thanks. a non-practicing. He's a non-practicing lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he was speaking from a, an airport. That last story. That's why there was that background noise. But anyway, Jesse Hoover arrived at the Togue Pond Gate at a Baxter State Park by taxi on May 20th, 1983. And just so you know, there are there's no public transportation to get there, so there are taxis that bring people. Hoover was determined to hike the Appalachian Trail, starting at its northern terminus, the peak of Katahdin. The ranger at the gate, however, talked her out of it. She was dressed in Oxford shoes, jeans, and a windbreaker. She had a small backpack, no water bottle or any kind of equipment, and all she had for food was beef jerky. Hmm. She didn't even have bug spray. 
Hoover scrapped the plan to start at the top of Katahdin and took the cab down the Golden Road, the dirt road built by the Great Northern Paper Company to haul logs through the North Woods, and took it to the A-Ball Gate. That gate is where the trail crosses A-Ball Stream, and by doing so, she was cutting the seven miles of her planned Appalachian Trail through hike off, but she was still determined to do the rest of the 2,190-mile route. Oh, you know. That goes through 14 states and, as I said, ends in Springer Mountain, Georgia. She'd already come a long way, almost the exact same distance, on a Greyhound bus from her home in White Settlement, Texas, a city on the outskirts of Fort Worth. She'd also traveled an emotional journey. Her husband, Eugene, had died the previous November, hit by a car while he was picking up cans alongside a road. The two had been married for 35 years. Jessie, 54, had gotten through that dark winter by planning this trip. She'd read about the Appalachian Trail or Baxter State Park or Katahdin, and it's never clear, and National Geographic magazine a while before, and it had stuck with her. As a child, she was very active. She played sports. She was brave. She jumped off roofs, climbed trees and stuff. Um, so she had been physically adventurous. But as an adult, once she started having kids, she pretty much just stayed at home. By May 20th, 1983, the five foot 10 Jesse weighed about 240 pounds and was not in good shape. She had very little physical activity in her life. Still, that winter, she fought the depression that had overtaken her after the loss of her husband by reading everything she could find about the Appalachian Trail. I'm going to hike that thing all the way to Georgia, she frequently told friends and family huh. members. She planned her itinerary with places where she'd stop along the way. The Appalachian Trail hikers have places that they stop, people send them stuff. She even bought pre-stamped postcards to mail to relatives throughout the journey to keep them updated. The family could also wire her money for supplies to the planned stops. That's another thing people did that back then, usually to a post office or a bank or yeah. something like that. She made arrangements with her doctor to get refills of her medication since she had epilepsy. And she brought along an AT&T calling card in case she ran out of money or needed to call home. Her five adult kids and other relatives were wary about Jessie's plan. As I said, she was 54, not in great shape, and hadn't been physically active. Her preparation for the hike hadn't included any strenuous hiking, and the terrain around her flat, dry Texas town was nothing like the dense woods, mountains, bogs, ravines, and rock-strewn landscape of very wet, very cold Maine. Jessie called her sister from her Bangor Motel on May 16th. She said she only had $15 to $20, but she wouldn't need money right away, and she'd wire for someone she did. Most people who through hike the trail start in Georgia in the spring and finish in Maine. The major reason is the weather. There's snow on Katahdin still in May and sometimes into June. And most of Maine that time of year is incredibly wet and muddy as the snow melts and the bugs are vicious until late June or July when they're still pretty bad. It's not clear why Jesse decided to be a southbound hiker. It could just be that Maine is the most challenging part of the hike not just Katahdin, but the entire 280 miles that goes through Maine. It also goes through Maine's Western Mountains, which is considered the toughest part of the whole Appalachian Trail. And maybe she just wanted to get the hard part over with first. I don't know. Before hikers get to Katahdin, if they're going north, or for southbound hikers when they leave Baxter State Park, they traverse an area known as the 100-mile wilderness. It's called this because there are no towns and no people, no place to get supplies, just a few tote roads. It's just an unspoiled main wilderness of woods, mountains, streams, lakes, swamps, bogs, rocks, 
bugs, <laughs> ravines, and more. <laughs> Later that summer, the gatekeeper at the A-ball gate on the Golden Road remembered Jessie easily. She seemed woefully unprepared to hike the trail. And this is not somebody who worked for Baxter. This is a private gate holder. A lot of that land is owned by timber companies, and you have to get through a gate. He asked her if she had bug spray, and she said no. He's the last person known to have seen her alive as he watched her walk toward the A-Ball Trail trailhead and the 100-Mile Wilderness. You'll read in some places that 100-Mile Wilderness is not actually wilderness. As I said, much of the 15 million acres of forest land in that part of Maine is owned by private timber companies, so there are tote roads and occasional people working. While that's true, it doesn't mean you're going to come across people, roads, aside from the tote roads or anything else. It's called the 100-mile wilderness because for that 100 miles, hikers pretty much have to rely on themselves and what they have with them. To read about the first six miles, if you're heading south from Abal Bridge, you'd almost think it's pastoral. Quote, southbound from Abal Bridge, the path winds easily through the woods, passing Herdbrook lean-to before climbing gently over rainbow ledges with its excellent view of Katahdin. The Appalachian Trail Mountain Guide says. That section of trail even has a nice name, Rainbow Trail, named for the Rainbow Ledges, Rainbow Lake, Rainbow Stream, and Rainbow Mountain, beginning about eight miles into the hike if you're going south. But anyone who thinks it's a walk in a pastoral park is mistaken. The hike begins through a very wet and buggy cedar bog, almost first thing, then crosses boulder fields while the elevation rises steadily, particularly three and a half miles in at the Herdbrook lean-to when southbound hikers will climb up 1,500-foot Rainbow Mountain. The terrain off the trail is thick, dense, untouched woods and underbrush that can be knee-high to shoulder-high. The trail itself is not groomed. It's rocky, full of tree roots, and particularly that time of year, muddy, slippery, and wet. Philip Werner writes about the 100-mile wilderness on his blog Section Hiker, quote, It's quite a remote and unforgiving hike if you haven't trained and prepared for it in advance. If you can't hike 10 miles or more per day up and down 3,500-foot mountains with a fully loaded backpack, you're not going to make it through the 100-mile wilderness in one go. Don't Uh try to train on the trail. It doesn't work. There's only one way to prepare for a 100-mile hike, and that is to hike every weekend and backpack on as many two- or three-day trips as possible earlier in the season. When I hiked north along the AT from Monson, which is the town at the southern end of the 100-mile wilderness, this summer, I was dismayed by the number of backpackers who bailed within the first 10 miles of their hikes because they weren't physically prepared. It was absolute carnage. I can't imagine (laughs) scheduling a two-week vacation to hike the wilderness only to discover that you're not physically fit to complete it on the first day. And this is Maureen again. Varying hiking sites describe the terrain in different ways, but in short, it includes fording rivers almost every day, um, fording rivers and streams, hiking up and down mountains, scrambling over rocks and more. On July 11th, 1983, Ralph Pinkham, a Maine State Police detective in Bangor, fielded a call from Hoover's sister in Texas. They hadn't heard from Jessie since she'd started hiking the trail and the family was worried. This was six weeks after she had Pinkham talked to the Baxter Park authorities and found out about Jesse's interactions with the Rangers on May 20th when she'd wanted to climb Katahdin, and also talked to the A-Ball gatekeeper who had seen Jesse go into the 100-mile wilderness, then handed off the investigation to the Maine Warden Service. As mentioned in other episodes of this podcast, the Maine Warden Service is a law enforcement agency, and wardens aren't to be confused with Maine guides who guide people on fishing, hunting, and hiking trips, or park rangers who do not have law enforcement authority and oversee parks. 
Warden David Sewell was assigned to the case. Sewell was intensely familiar with the area Jesse was last seen. In late June, he'd finished an exhaustive yet ultimately successful search for missing Appalachian Trail or perspective Appalachian Trail hiker Michael Tilley of Lincoln, Nebraska. A week after Jesse began her hike on May 20th, a week after Jesse began her hike on May 27th, Tilly, who intended to through hike the trail going south, started his morning at Abal Bridge, the same spot Jesse did. Three miles down the trail, he left his 80-pound pack on the trail so he could quote scoot ahead and find a place to camp. His intention was to quickly move forward, leave the trail to find a camping spot, go back and get his pack, then continue his hike to the camping okay. spot he'd found. Yeah, I, I'm not sure why he didn't plan to camp at the Herd Brook lean-to, which is 3.5 miles into the hike. And these lean-tos you'll hear us talk about are three-sided wooden structures with wooden floors and a roof. They're open that sleep about can sleep up to four people and they're my favorite place to camp in Baxter. That's what I'm doing when I'm going up there. Lean to. Except um, on the Appalachian Trail, other people might yeah, be in there with you. Everybody Ugh. is. Yeah, it's gross. Remember, three miles on the Appalachian Trail is not the same as walking three miles down a road. So this would have been a while after he started. Have I mentioned yet that Appalachian Trail hikers, particularly in places like the hundred mile wilderness, are urged to stay on the trail? Mm -hmm. There's a reason for that until he soon found out. He got lost. I followed the pond down to where some fishing houses were, but somehow I never got connected back to the main trail, he told the Bangor Daily News a week later from his hospital bed in Greenville. Mm. As the days passed, he became increasingly exhausted and panicked as he tried to get back to Abal Bridge. All his provisions, including water, were with his pack where he'd left it on the trail. Quote, I followed anything I could find. I did come to quite a few ponds and I hoped to see some fishermen, but didn't find anybody <laughs> at all. I thought I had walked through some sort of town line, but I wasn't thinking clear. I was thinking all kinds of strange things. Meanwhile, some hikers had reported the pack till he had left on the trail to the warden service. It's not clear what day they made the report. The head warden in the area at the time was Patrick Dorian, who would later become commander of the warden service. He wasn't concerned at first. People were always reporting equipment on the trail, and usually it belonged to a hiker who was very much present. You may not remember, but in our 2017 Murder on the Appalachian Trail, when talking about another missing hiker, Geraldine Largay, I'd said it's the practice for hikers to leave their pack on the trail if they leave the trail to relieve themselves or something. Yeah. This is because it's easier to maneuver in the untamed woods without the pack, and also, if something happens, people know where you left the trail, and by the way, if you want to hear more about Geraldine's case, I talk about it in episode 59 also. I, I, we mention it in, in episode 36, but I also talk about it in episode 59. Anyway, when the pack was still on the trail on May 31st, the warden service got to work. Besides Tilly's provisions, all his identification was in the pack too. Dorian called Tilly's parents in Nebraska to get some information. It would help to know, for instance, what direction he'd been hiking in. They told Dorian Tilly had started the morning of May 27th from Abal Bridge, so the wardens knew he was a southbound hiker. A quick search turned up nothing, so they posted a missing hiker bulletin at the Warden Service Greenville headquarters. On that Wednesday morning, June 1st, at 5.30 a.m., 17 wardens and five members of the Wilderness Rescue Team from Waterville began a search for Tilly and included both air search by at least two planes and a ground search. The wardens, while searching in the Herd Pond area, which is about three, four miles down the trail from Abal Bridge, 
came upon a camp owner on the pond who reported to the warden service that he'd found on May 28 that his camp had been broken into. Oh. On the table was a $5 bill and a note that said, I'm lost, I'm freezing, sorry I broke in. The camp owner basically shrugged and used the note to light his fire. Uh, well, he's probably used to people. Yeah. I mean, the guy wasn't there anymore, you know. At 11.15 a.m., nearly six hours into the search, Warden Gary Sargent and Corporal Charlie Davis heard someone hollering while they were searching an area south of Big Beaver Pond. There, they found Tilly slumped against a tree wearing only a t-shirt, jeans, and boots. All of his clothing was soaking wet. And the Bangor Daily News story says, quote, he was hungry, exhausted, and bitten by the bugs. (laughs) By the bugs. By the bugs. The two wardens had to carry him to Big Beaver Pond, where he was loaded onto an airplane, you know, the kind that can land on the water, and flown to an ambulance, which took him to Dean Hospital in Greenville. I pretty much collapsed, especially coming out with those wardens, he told BDN. He said he'd even blacked out a few times. The hospital said that among his other ailments, he had immersion feet, which you may know better as trench foot. Thank you, World War One. And happens when your feet are constantly wet with no break. It results in tingling or itching, pain, swelling, cold and blotchy skin, numbness, and a prickly or heavy feeling, blisters, dead tissue that falls off and can Ugh, necessitate gross. toe or foot amputation if left untreated. See, and people wonder why I don't go outside. I know, shit. Yes, Tilly's is a harrowing story. He went off the trail just a week after Jesse Hoover embarked on her hike from the same spot. Tilly was 23. Six foot one and 150 pounds. So he was young, healthy, and in good shape. And mm. yet, if he hadn't been found when he had, he likely never would have been found alive. And by the way, this is right around the time that Billy and his friends were taking their yeah, trip. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It's interesting. The day Hoover hit the trail in her windbreaker with no water, bug spray, sleeping bag, tent, rain gear, change of shoes, and only beef jerky for food, it was a pleasant 72 degrees. But that afternoon, clouds gathered and it started raining. The temperature dropped to the low 40s overnight. As the rain continued the next day, the high only reached 59. Philip Werner, the blogger at Section Hiker, writes of hiking the 100-mile wilderness, quote, if you've never been on an 8- to 10-day hike, the impact of bad weather can have a cascading effect long after you experience it. For example, wet boots can chew up your feet for days after they get wet. The same goes for a wet sleeping bag, inner tent, and so on, unquote. Jesse had none of those. It's very Aww. sad. I shudder to think of her out there with just her windbreaker, no tent, no sleeping bag. so sad. I know. I wish in all her research she had... I was thinking about that. It's hard to remember with the internet at our fingertips what I know. it was like. But back then, she would have had to go to the library. Yeah. I'm betting in Fort Worth, there are a lot fewer resources about the Appalachian Trail than we would find if we went to our local library. You wonder how much research, what kind of research she did. And as Billy said in his recording, people underestimate the area up here. I don't blame her at all. I feel very, very bad for her. She just had no clue. And the people around her, even though they were wary of it, had no clue or they would have told her, you can't do that. I know. Anyway, given the search for Tilly, Warden David Sewell figured if Jesse had been out there, dead or alive, they would have found her, even though they didn't know at the time she was missing and they weren't looking for her or her blue backpack or her jacket. Now it was six weeks later. As I said, there are 15 million acres of woods out there. Uh. Sewell figured another full-scale search at this point would be pointless. 
He told the Bangor Daily News in 2015 that if the warden service had known about Hoover right when she disappeared, they could have diverted resources from the Tilly search to also looking for her. But he also said that he believes even not knowing she was out there, they would have found her during the Tilly search. He told Fox Bangor TV in 2019, quote, a few days before that, and I think he means a few days after she started hiking, we had a lost hiker right in the same place, right in and around Rainbow Trail, and we had a huge, huge search. We did a huge search right in the same area that Jesse would have been because I don't think she went too far. Still, he said, we went over the woods with a fine-tooth comb when they searched for Tilly. If she were there, we would have found her. We don't ignore people in the woods. Maureen here again. I'm not sure that that's true, not about the ignoring people, but about the finding her. Reading the story from the newspaper the day after Tilly was found, which had was so jargony when it described the search, I'm sure it was taken directly from the warden service <laughs> description of the search. The search started out big, but they found Tilly in six hours. That may seem like a lot of time, but that means there was plenty of area that was not covered. The Bangor yeah. Daily News story says Baxter State Park Rangers at Dacey Pond, which is near there, questioned northbound Appalachian trail hikers all summer to see if they'd come across Jesse on the trail. None had, of course. And that was the extent of the search for Jesse Hoover. You may read in, a, in the few articles there are about her references to extensive or exhaustive searches, but there wasn't one. Quote, we contacted people, but nobody saw nor heard from her again, Sewell told Fox Bangor. Its print version said he said it in a thick Maine accent. Huh. Memo to all journalists who come to Maine to work. A thick Maine accent may stick out to you, but you're not going to win any friends by pointing it out to Mainers that somebody is speaking with. And friends. also, as we've discussed, that doesn't tell you what their accent was because there exactly. are different Maine accents. Anyway, Sewell told the TV station, I think about her all the time, but I know what the result is. So it isn't something I have any questions about. You know, in my own mind, she got lost. She wasn't prepared, didn't have proper food or tent and whatnot. So she perished in the Maine woods. Aww. That makes me sad. I know. Both the Bangor Daily News and Fox Bangor articles make kind of a big deal that the fact her remains weren't found and where she actually died is a mystery. And I want to say I got a lot of the information about her and her hike from a Christopher Burns 2015 Bangor Daily News article entitled Vanished, Jesse Hoover's Unsolved and Unfound. I can't remember the exact thing, but it implies it was the only detailed story about her, which I'll get to in a minute. But I don't think it's such a big mystery, though, what happened to her. I think her remains were there in the 100-mile wilderness, probably not more than a very slow day's hike from Abal Bridge. I think they just didn't look in the right places. It's hard to find a missing hiker. The extensive search in 2013 for Geraldine Largay, one of the biggest ever in Western Maine off the AT, was a zillion times more thorough than the one for Michael Tilley. And they didn't find Geraldine Largay either. Mm -hmm. She was found more than two years later when a forester doing a study came upon her campsite. And again, for that story, listen to episode 59. There was no news coverage of Hoover at the time she was reported missing and none any time later, literally. I can't get in the head of the editors of the Bangor Daily News, the one paper that would have covered the area at the time, but there's no mention of Jesse until they do a retrospective of Maine's missing in 2009. That said, I know that in 2017, when I was researching another episode using the newspaper archives at the Maine State Library, I came across like a three-paragraph story from July 
1983 saying the Maine State Police had received a report that she was missing. And it was obviously just a little thing from a press release. I think I saw it in the Kennebec Journal or some other paper, not the BDN. And I'm sure they just picked up a press release from the state police, but nobody ever followed up. And there was never Mm. anything more than the Bangor Daily News did that Chris Burns story in 2015. That was great. It talked to her daughter, Mary Yadlin, her son, David Sewell, the warden, and it was a good story. Then in 2016, they did a story on how reporter Chris Burns researched the 2015 (laughs) story, you know, that it was this remarkable um, act of journalism. And I was going to wicked make fun of them doing that. Because while his research trail was good, it was something that should be basic journalism. And I kept reading it, waiting for the big astounding thing he did. And sorry, Chris didn't find it. Uh, Also, they have a caption that says Geraldine Largay was lost in the 100-mile wilderness, which she most certainly wasn't. She was lost nearly 100 miles to the west of the 100-mile wilderness, the southern entrance in Monson. But anyway, like I said, I was going to make fun of it. But then reading that article, he says the only mention of Jesse Hoover is in a column I wrote for the Kennebec Journal in 2013. Ooh, he even quotes it. And here's what he wrote about me. Oh. Despite all the coverage of the Largy case, Hoover's name came up only once in a 2013 column by Kennebec Journal columnist Maureen Milliken. There weren't dozens of stories about the missing hiker and a search for her. Milliken wrote about the few scant details known about Hoover, her name, height, weight, and that she disappeared. As Milliken wrote, quote, that's all we know, unquote. He didn't link to my column, but that's okay. I don't work there anymore and don't give a shit, particularly since I can't find it online anymore, although I know I've seen it in the past. I think I have it on a computer somewhere, but it's the world's loss that it's not out there. It is. My feeling is once she was reported missing, the mindset at the newspapers were, that was weeks ago. Who knows where she is? She sounds like she didn't know what she was doing and she's a woman in her 50s, so why should we care, et cetera, et cetera. As I've said before, news stories are driven by what the police are doing and police tell them nobody was looking for her. There wasn't a big search for her, so they're not going to write about it since there was no search. And no offense to the warden service, it sounds like they blew it off. Granted, it was six weeks later and they had no clue how far she went, but it doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to figure out she wasn't prepared to go far. I think that they didn't want to expend the resources six weeks later, given that if she was still in the area, it was a search for a body, not a person, and they had other bigger fish to fry. But it's tough when a body isn't found. Eugene Daniel Hoover, Jesse's son, told Bangor Daily News reporter Chris Burns in 2015 that he still can't shake the feeling though the chances are slim that maybe she's out there somewhere. Jesse's daughter, Mary Yadlin, added her mother to the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System database in 2010. She's also now on the Maine State Police Missing Person website and the Charlie Project site. If she is found, or if her remains are found, it'll be from someone stumbling over them while they're off the trail. Mary Yadlin, by the way, who the BDN interviewed for its 2015 story, died in December. Well, Jesse Hoover almost certainly didn't die on Katahdin or in Baxter State Park. She was outside of it. I've included her in this story because it's the ultimate example of why the Rangers do what they do. It's definitely the saddest story I'll tell in this episode, or maybe in a a lot of episodes. In fact, we're going to move down the sadness scale as we go here, although it's still pretty sad. 
<laughs> there have been at least 64 deaths in Baxter State Park since 1933. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk about all well, of Well, more than on the, so, Appal- oh, no, the Appalachian Trail's murders. Never mind. Right, right. This is just deaths. I don't think there's been any no murder. There was, I don't want to go into it. There was a connection to a murder, but um, it's a story for a different day. Anyway, 61 of them are listed in Death on Katahdin and other misadventures in Baxter State Park by Randy Minotaur. That list was a great help. There have been at least a few more since that book was published a few years ago that I've tried to glean from the internet. That book does recount some of these things. I read it years ago. I did not read it for this episode because I didn't want it to influence my writing. But again, if you've read it and things sound familiar, it's because we're pulling from the same sources. But I did look at her list of people who have died in Baxter. Some of those 64, 65 deaths couldn't be prevented. They were acts of nature, heart attacks, that type of thing. But many could have. And here are a couple of those stories that I found the most interesting. Well, there are several accounts of this first story including a death on Katad, and I've gotten most of my information from the 25-page November 1963 report that the governor at the time, John Reed, commissioned for the Maine Warden Service and Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife to do, and also Bangor Daily News stories from that time, and ditto for the story that comes after as far as the Bangor Daily News. 20 years before Jesse Hoover took her fateful height, at 5 a.m., on October 26, 1963, friends Helen Maurer and Margaret Ivasick set out from their Boston area homes for a weekend at Baxter State Park. Maurer, 50, of Concord, Mass., was a seasoned hiker. She'd been hiking the Northeast High Peak since she was nine, including New Hampshire's Presidential Range, which has many 4,000-foot peaks. Ivasick had only taken up hiking three years before when her husband died. The two, both widows, worked together at Railway Express Agency in Boston, Maurer, at least, was no wilting flower. She'd worked loading boxes onto freight cars before switching to clerical work. The two women arrived at Roaring Book Campground in Baxter in late afternoon, October 26. It was sunny and milder than normal for that time of year. They were met by Ranger Ralph Heath. Nowadays, the 350 or so mile trip from their home to the Togue Pond Gate at Baxter would take about five hours. In 1963, Interstate 95 was only six years old and only extended 60 miles from York to Freeport. The remaining 200 miles in Maine would have been on two-lane roads. And just a note here, the trip to Baxter doesn't end when you get to Millinocket. You have to drive another 20 miles on a country road then inside Baxter on the notorious dirt coat road to your campground. Needless to say, it had been a long day by the time the two women got to Roaring Brook. And that weekend was also fall back to standard time from daylight saving time. Uh-huh. So it was going to get dark early. They had planned to leave their car at Roaring Brook and hike the 3.3 miles to Chimney Pond Campground, which is a hike-in campground. They were met at Roaring Brook by Ranger Ralph Heath, who gave them a copy of the park's rules and regulations and discussed their plans with them. Since the pair had had such a long day, after talking to Heath, they decided to spend the night in a motel outside the park, then come back the next morning to hike to Chimney Pond. On their way out, they stopped at the Baxter Park headquarters, which at the time were at the Togue Pond Gate. Now they're in Millinocket. Ivasick got out of the car and went into the headquarters with the intention of talking to park supervisor, Helon Taylor. He wasn't in, but his father was, so she talked to him for a few minutes. It's not known what they talked about or why she wanted to talk to the supervisor in the first place. Hmm. Helen stayed in the car. The next day, they went back, parked at Roaring Brook, and hiked up to Chimney Pond. 
Chimney Pond is described as the most spectacular of Baxter's 10 campgrounds. It's a common camping spot for people hiking Katahdin because it provides access to most of the trails to the top. It's on Chimney Pond, which is actually a glacially formed tarn backed by the 2000 foot wall and granite cliffs of Katahdin's Great Basin. Billy described it a little in his recording. Nowadays, there are nine lean-tos at the campground, the three-sided structures with a roof, and there's one bunkhouse, which wasn't there in 1963. They used to allow tenting there, but no longer do because of lightning danger. A lightning strike in 1968 killed one hiker who had been in a tent and injured several others. A story for another day. Helen and Margaret weren't planning on tenting anyway. Heath assigned them to a lean-to, and they had a nice talk with him and Ranger Rodney Sargent about their plans to hike Katahdin the next day. They were the only people staying at the campground Mm. that late October. Then, as it is now, the park officially closes to camping on October 15th. That's why Appalachian thru-hikers who are northbound are rushing to get there before October 15th. If you want to camp there, and this was through 1963, in a hike Katahdin, You have to register specially with the park before you get there. You can't just show up and do it. The weather had been beautiful and warm on Sunday, October 27th. When the pair set off on their hike at 8 a.m. Monday, October 28th, after briefly discussing their plans with the two rangers, it was still warm and sunny. As Helen and Margaret headed for Cathedral Ledge Trail, the two rangers, Ralph Heath and Rodney Sargent, headed up Dudley Trail to continue work they've been doing on Keep Ridge on the new Helon-Taylor Trail, which had just opened that year. And I don't know if it's just me. I think it's very weird that they named a trail in honor of a guy who's still alive and still the supervisor of the park. I just, no matter what he's done, I just- I know, that is kind of weird. Despite the warm weather, the two women were experienced hikers, though neither had climbed Katahdin before, and they were dressed in layers. Helen carried a knapsack with their lunch, some extra clothes in case they got wet or cold. Margaret had what was described as an Arctic jacket tied around her waist, and I'm not sure what that would have meant in 1963. The women, quote, took their time going up the mountain, Helen said later. They got to Baxter Peak, the highest point, at about 1.30 p.m., where they ate lunch, took some photos, and hung out for quite some time, Helen said. When it came time to leave and go back down the mountain, they decided to walk out on Knife Edge, though they weren't sure if they'd take that route back to the campground. They just wanted to see the notorious 1.1 mile Arit, and an Arit is a ridge in between mountains Ooh. that connects Pomola and Baxter Peaks. As Billy described, and as Baxter Park Authority will tell you, it's the most spectacular hike in the park, so how can you pass it up? They would have had to hike the entire knife edge to get to the Dudley Trail, which would take them back to the campground if they didn't go back the way they came. Halfway along knife edge, there's a technical descent. That's only for very experienced rock climbers, and you won't even find it on trail maps of the park. When the two women hiked, one would frequently go ahead of the other. As a former Girl Scout steeped in the buddy system, this bothers me. Uh. Um, But anyway, Margaret and Helen had been separated for about 10 or 15 minutes as they crossed Knife Edge with Margaret ahead when Helen heard her calling from somewhere down Uh below the trail. When Helen got to above where Margaret was, Margaret said, Helen, this is a shortcut. I think it's the best way to go. Margaret had looked down from the trail to see chimney ponds below them, and she could even see the campground. She figured it would be a short and easy way to get back. Helen, though, who'd been hiking for four decades, was not convinced. 
Her experience told her not to leave the marked trail, and I'm sure the rangers had told them that too. Uh-huh. If there was an easy way back, why wasn't it a trail? Why wasn't it on the trail map? She couldn't see Margaret below her, but the two argued about it for about 15 or 20 minutes. We're both very determined women, Helen said later. They eventually agreed to disagree. Margaret would go down her shortcut and Helen would continue on knife edge to Dudley Trail. Again, I wouldn't advise this no matter what your experience, if you're in a remote area, particularly since Helen is the one with the knapsack. When hiking, Uh the rule is to stick together and err on the side of caution. As Helen continued along knife edge, she frequently called out, hoping to maintain voice contact with Margaret, but she wasn't successful. Uh After a bit, she came to the top of tactical um, rock climbing trail I mentioned. There was a sign that cautioned that only experienced climbers with ropes and tactical equipment should Uh take that route. If you look at a Baxter State Park trail map, as I said, most don't show this trail on the map. It's not for hikers, and they don't want people assuming it is. Mm -hmm. Helen became even more concerned. She called out again for Margaret, and this time Margaret answered. She said she was, quote, on the wall, unquote, and couldn't go up or down, but but she wasn't hurt. Helen told her to hang tight. She'd go down to the campground by the Dudley Trail and get help. Margaret's last words to Helen were, I'll see you tomorrow, I hope. As you've probably guessed, the nearness of the campsite and Chimney Pond from up on Knife Edge were an illusion. There was more than a thousand feet of sheer rock ledge and scrabbly underbrush between Knife Edge and the pond and campsite. It wasn't a shortcut at all. By the time Helen got to the campground, it was close to 7 p.m., Neither of the rangers were around and it was dark. The sun sets around 5.30 that time of year in Maine. And as I said, daylight savings time had ended the morning before. Helen walked out to the edge of the pond and looked up the sheer cliff. She couldn't see Margaret. She yelled for her though and Margaret answered. No surprise here. On a day when the wind isn't blowing, rangers say you can hear people shouting up on knife edge when you're down at the campground thousand feet below. Helen built a fire in front of the lean-to and then went back to the pond to continue to yell up to Margaret to make sure they maintain contact. Ranger Ralph Heath got back to Chimney Pond Campground about 8.15. The other ranger, Rodney Sargent, had gone over to A-Ball Campground for the night, so Ralph was alone. He was exhausted. That was clear to Helen. He had been working on the Helon-Taylor Trail all day with um, Rodney. After Helen told him about Margaret, he went to the edge of the pond and kneeled up to her, trying to gauge what kind of shape she was in. She answered back, and when he determined she wasn't injured, he told her to stay put, and they'd rescue her as soon as it was light enough in the morning. Ralph and Helen went into the ranger camp. They have cabins, you know, they call them a camp like we do in Maine, and they had some soup for supper, and Ralph made his usual nightly call to Helon Taylor and told him about Margaret. Taylor didn't consider the matter particularly serious, And Ralph agreed. Margaret wasn't injured. She was in a secure spot and it was dark out, meaning a rescue would be more dangerous than helpful at that point. Ralph's intention was to get a few hours sleep so he could be in shape to coordinate a rescue of Margaret as soon as he could in the morning. Helen was awoken in her lean-to sometime after 10 that night by Ralph. She could hear the storm door of his camp slamming in the wind. He told her he hadn't gone to bed yet and he couldn't sleep and now he was concerned about the change in the weather He was going to go get Margaret now. Helen gave him Margaret's rucksack. They hadn't taken it. They'd only taken that small knapsack up on their hike that day. So the rucksack was still at the campsite. 
Ralph loaded it with food, a parka, 80 feet of rope, a python, a climbing axe axe or or claw or something. Right, right. An extra, right. An extra clothing. It was about 11 p.m. when he headed out to get Margaret. What he and Helen didn't know was that Hurricane Ginny had been roaring up the East Coast and was now arriving in Maine. Ralph got back to the campground around 4 a.m. He had rappelled down from Knife Edge and got close enough to Margaret to talk to her, but he said the rope was too short to get to her. He said she was by the big waterfall, which is a landmark, and he told her to stay put and not move until morning when he could come back with more help. He had some breakfast and called up Helon Taylor, told him what was going on. By now, the wind had picked up and there was an icy rain and it was starting to snow. The sooner we get her off there, the better, Ralph said to Helon Taylor, the park supervisor. So after he got some breakfast in him and got his stuff together at 6, 10 a.m., he set out again. He hadn't slept all night. He told Helen that he was going to approach Margaret from the bottom of the waterfall. Ralph was very familiar with that area and had scaled it through the ravines that go up along the side. He could scale it all the way up knife edge without a rope when the weather was good. He'd done it several times. He seemed confident he could get to Margaret. As he was walking away, Ranger Rodney Sargent called the Ranger's camp. Helen answered the phone and Sargent told her to tell Ralph he was on his way up. Helen called out to Ralph that Rodney was on his way and Ralph responded, fine, thank you, and kept going. I don't think he said it like, fine, thank I think he said, you know, fine, thank you, and he kept going. Helon Taylor, the supervisor, had told Sergeant and Ranger Owen Grant to get up to Chimney Pond to help with the rescue. Sergeant had started for Chimney Pond immediately and got there around 7.30. Grant made it to Chimney Pond by 8 a.m. By now, there were two inches of snow on the ground, and it was coming down fast, and the wind had picked up quite a bit. After talking to Helen about where Ralph said he was going, Rodney snowshoed to the base of the chimney and started hollering for Ralph. He hollered for 20 minutes and got no response. By now, there was eight inches of snow at least on the ground, and the wind was howling even more to the point where there was no visibility. Back at park headquarters, Helon Taylor notified Maine wardens Clayton Gifford and Elmer Knowlton, both in Millinocket, about the situation. By 11.30 a.m., Taylor and Knowlton had put chains on a four-wheel drive vehicle and were headed up the Baxter Tote Road to Roaring Brook. Along the way, they came across a Forest Service pickup truck that had tried to make the trip but had gone off the road. They couldn't get it back on and going again, so they left it. The going was so rough, it was almost dark by the time they got to Roaring Brook Campground. Still, Knowlton, the warden, made the hike to Chimney Pond and continued to Dudley Trail, flashing a light and calling out, but he got no response. By now, there was more than two feet of snow with drifts oh, up to four God. feet in some areas. Knowlton tried to find a trail that Ralph would have made in the snow, but he couldn't find anything, of course, because so much snow had fell. Yeah. He estimated it was about 28 degrees in the park and about 18 degrees in the basin. It was going to be a busy 24 hours or more for the main warden service and other main rescuers. By Wednesday morning, six people were reported missing in Maine's woods and mountains, caught by surprise by the storm. Besides Margaret Ivasick and now Ralph Heath, they included all hunters, a Bangor man, Charles Jellison, lost in Edinburgh in Penobscot County near Bangor, two Loring Air Force Base airmen up in Aroostook County, lost in Sear Plantation, and another man lost in industry in Franklin County in western Maine. To make matters worse, though Hurricane Ginny had blown through by Wednesday morning, a coastal storm had roared in, bringing more snow, ice, freezing temperatures, and wind to the state. 
The Bangor Daily News reported that aside from the Park Service Rangers and Wardens looking for Margaret and Ralph, a team of experienced mountaineers from the University of Maine were also on their way to the scene by Wednesday morning. When Warden David Priest, who is the Warden Supervisor for the area, heard about the missing woman and park ranger on the radio news Wednesday morning, and although that may sound weird, they were spending all Tuesday looking for her. And also a lot of the state had lost its power because of the storm, which made communication more difficult. So David Priest, the head of the Warren Service for that region, heard about it Wednesday morning, the day after Ralph Heath had set off to rescue Margaret. Priest rounded up several wardens and headed for the park through hurricane winds and two feet of snow. At Roaring Brook, as the wardens got their gear together, two woodsmen came out of the trail saying they couldn't make it to Chimney Pond because the snow was too high. Priest, who by this time was in charge of the rescue effort, led the wardens up the trail where they ran into Ranger Rodney Sargent. He took the wardens up the trail and Priest returned to Roaring Brook to head the search operation. By the time he got back, it was after dark on Wednesday night. He headed down to the Togue Pond Gate to meet the University of Maine Mountaineers who had arrived. On Thursday morning, with Margaret and Ralph not having been heard from for two days, there were now at least 35 people involved in the search. My goodness. It was all headquartered at Roaring Brook with them staying in the Rangers camp and in the lean-tos. They all communicated through walkie-talkies, and communication wasn't an issue. The weather was. Quote, you can't visualize the wind and snow. Visibility was zero, and that's putting it mildly, Priest said later. Mm. The Mountaineers from the University of Maine couldn't make any headway at all. Helicopters were standing by at Dow Air Force Base at the Bangor Airport. That's the Air Force Base for the Maine Air National Guard. But they couldn't use them because of the weather. One did try on Thursday, but had to turn back. When the Mountaineers from the University of Maine couldn't make it up, they called in out-of-state Mountaineers from Vermont. (laughs) Um, who got there on Thursday. One of of them, William Putnam, the guy in charge, later said that communication actually was an issue. No one was keeping a search log to show what had already been done or who was doing what or where it had been searched. He said his climbers had also been told that both Ralph and Margaret were wearing bright colors, but he found out later, long after, that they really hadn't been. So they'd been looking for these colors in the snow. Gale force wind continued Wednesday and Thursday, blowing the snow around, so there was no visibility. There was a few hours of no snow on Friday, and then it began to rain. It rained all day Friday and into Saturday, drenching torrential rains and freezing at night. That rain, of course, froze on top of the snow that was already there. By now, Ralph Heath and Margaret Ivasek hadn't been seen for five days. The climbers from Vermont finally got up to Knife Edge and other spots on Saturday, but the weather was still awful. There were two or three inches of wet snow at Pomola Peak, but lower down, it was deep, frozen, and hard packed. The climbers did what they could. They went a little way down the face, but when they got back to Chimney Pond, Putnam got on the radio and told those in charge of the search that they might as well pack it in because nothing would be found given the conditions. Putnam, the guy in charge of the climbers, told them no one could have survived those conditions. Those people were dead on Tuesday. There was no question in my mind, he said later. He said the snow on the ledges was several feet deep, and he could tell by the way it was packed how fierce the wind had been. It's the wind that kills you, he said. Park officials told the Bangor Daily News that Ralph Heath would have returned to report what was going on if he had been able to. But Ralph Heath's brother-in-law, Frank Darling, also a ranger, held out some hope. He told the BDN that Ralph was an experienced outdoorsman. Quote, he would never get lost up there. He may have found a place to hole up and wait. 
While the situation was obviously dire, Mainers have a story they hold on to when someone is lost. In July 1939, New York Boy Scout Don Fendler, a 12-year-old, became lost in Baxter when climbing Katahdin with his Boy Scout troop. He was found alive and in fairly good shape nine days later. His story was immortalized in the book, Lost on a Mountain in Maine by Joseph Egan, which was rushed into print 1939 and has rarely been out of print since, and is read by almost every Maine school child at some point. Yes. Schooling. If it had been July like it had with Don Fendler, maybe things would have turned out better for Margaret Ivasick and Ralph Heath. But it wasn't July. On Monday, November 4th, the search was officially called off. On Tuesday, November 5th, a week after Ralph Heath first went up the trail to get Margaret Ivasick, they were able to get a plane in the air. The pilot made multiple passes for two hours over the basin as David Priest and Ranger Owen Grant scanned the walls looking for any sign of life or any sign at all of Margaret and Ralph but they could see nothing but snow. Of those hunters who were all lost during the storm, they all made it home safely except Charles Jellison of Bangor, who apparently got lost. His body was found November 9th, a couple of miles from his campsite. An inquiry into the Katahdin desk was held November 12th to determine what had happened and make recommendations for the future. Both Helen Mowers and Christopher Ivasek, Margaret's 25-year-old son, urged the park not to put restrictions on mountain climbing, but instead to better equip the ranger stations and rangers for searches. Margaret's son, with the help from a fundraising team at Railway Express Agency, where she worked, tried to keep the search going, raising money for it, but the conditions in the winter, as all the main search folks knew, were too brutal for it. Yeah. On April 29th, 1964, my third birthday, which I actually remember, The snow had melted enough that wardens Elmer Knowlton and Charles Merrill could head up to Chimney Pond. Mm -hmm. It was six months to the day since Margaret Ivasek had first headed off on her shortcut from Knife Edge. Up on Pomola Peak, through binoculars, the two spotted a thin tendril of rope extending over and outcropping far below them. They called headquarters in Augusta, where a special mountain rescue team formed directly as a result of the previous falls events after that hearing was dispatched. Among the eight-man team was Ranger Rodney Sargent, the one who'd partnered with Ralph Heath the fall before and was the first to set out looking for him when he disappeared. The next day on April 30th around noon, the team found the body of Margaret Ivasek on a nearly inaccessible ledge encased in nine feet of ice among a jumble of huge boulders a thousand feet below knife edge. Nearby dangled the 80-foot rope that Ralph Heath had brought, knotted halfway up and around a boulder. Even though her body was encased in ice, they could see she was wrapped in a ranger's jacket. The search team had ice axes, but the ice was too thick for them to release Margaret's body. The next day, a tactical search team removed her body and was lifted up by helicopter. The medical examiner found she had a severe leg injury. They considered it likely she fell either before Ralph found her or while he was trying to rescue her. Medical examiner H.C. Gilman said it was clear from her injuries that she fell a good distance and her femoral artery had been cut. The search for the body of Ralph Heath intensified after Margaret's was found. He was found May 17, 1964, on an unprotected ledge lying on his back about 400 feet above where Margaret's body was. The ruling was that he died of exposure. The theory now turned to the fact that Ralph had found Margaret and was trying to get her down the side of the mountain when she fell. 
He then started back up to the trail to get help, but succumbed to the elements. Warden David Priest said that the storm was too much for anyone to endure. It must have been like walking into a white wall, he said. When the wardens had found Margaret more than two weeks before, the snow on the ledge where Ralph Heath was found was still high. They had likely walked right over him, Priest said. When they found Ralph, they lifted his body up on a litter to knife edge, and the search team, including Rodney Sargent, carried it over knife edge, over Baxter Peak, and down to the plateau near Thoreau Spring, where a helicopter took him away. Helen Mower died in August 2004 at the age of 90. My mother was a very strong and attractive woman, her son, Charles Williamson, I know, told the Boston Globe. She was always a can-do person, fiercely independent, too. She wasn't afraid to do whatever it took to get by, even hard physical work. Near the end of the feature-style obituary, the story does make mention of what happened more than 40 years before. When she wasn't traveling, bowling, or playing cards, Mrs. Mower enjoyed mountain climbing with her friend Marga Avosik. While the two friends were hiking on Mount Katata in Maine on October 29, 1963, tragedy struck. Margaret and a young park ranger, Ralph Heath, disappeared in a blizzard. Their bodies weren't discovered until the following spring. Five years later, Mrs. Mower made a memorial trek on the same hiking route with her son. Her son told the Globe that despite her life's trials, which included a divorce during the Depression when she was a young mother with two kids, and then widowhood, she was a glass-half-full kind of person. She was a survivor. Up until her last breath, she wanted to get out and do things. She wasn't one to just sit around too much. Mm, I guess not. Oh, and I forgot to mention, Ralph Heath was 37. Lest you think I'm only picking on women in this episode, I just thought these were two interesting and tragic stories. They were both sad. Thanks a lot. Yeah, and the fact that they were women, I don't think is relevant for a change. There are so many stories, some involving children, brutally awful. I'm not going to talk about them. But I do want to briefly talk about two stories that are kind of connected to the Margaret Ivasick and Ralph Heath one. One was in 2010. At the time of the 19 people who died in Katahdin, almost all of them, 15, had died after leaving established trails. I don't know how many mm-hmm. more. I haven't been able to Don't leave your trail. Right. The information I'm about to talk about comes from an Associated Press story by David Sharp on June 3rd, 2010. Michael Hayes, 41, of Stowe, Ohio, wasn't one of the people who died, but he could have easily been. On Memorial Day weekend of 2010, Hayes was tired after climbing the Helon Taylor Trail, which is the shortest but steepest route up the mountain to Baxter Peak. As he traversed Knife Edge on his way down, dreading the two peaks he'd have to go over and the long hike down to the camping spot where his car is parked, he looked down and saw Chimney Pond. No. Ah, a shortcut, he thought. Quote, it didn't take long to recognize the error of his ways, the Associated Press story The ghost of Margaret could have told him. I know. All he needs to do is read a book. Hayes ended up in impenetrable brush, then slid 20 feet down a sheet of granite, shattering his kneecap. Ouch. What ensued for the next three days was, quote, the biggest search in 40 years in the 200,000 acre Baxter State Park. Hayes' hiking style was to keep on moving, so instead of taking a break and getting a second wind, which he should have done when he was tired, he figured he could take the shortcut for a while and then rejoin the trail lower Uh down. He spent the first night on an island in a creek because he was afraid of bears. He figured he would hear splashing if they came after him. (laughs) Over three days alone in the woods, he survived on three granola bars. He drank from a creek but didn't overdo it because he was afraid of water-borne parasites. 
He later realized he hadn't been drinking enough. He became dehydrated. His mind began playing tricks on him. Uh At first, he followed the creek to a valley below the mountain, thinking it would bring him to people or a cabin or at least a road. Memo to all hikers who are lost on Katahdin. There are not people. There are not cabins. There are not roads. Jeez, read the literature. Because of the damage to his knee on the descent, he had to move along on his butt. Excruciatingly painful. I was kicking myself. I'm lying down at night saying, dummy, 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 he said later. His cell phone was useless because there was no reception. Put that in the same garbage can as people, cabins, and roads. He tried to get a signal each morning and night. In between, he turned it off to save the battery. Two days in, he realized he'd made another mistake. The forest canopy was so thick because he'd been descending, he couldn't be seen by helicopters buzzing overhead. So he decided to get a good night of rest, creating a makeshift tent before beginning Memorial Day by moving slowly and painfully on his butt back up to higher ground because, as I said, his kneecap was shattered. That afternoon, after he'd reached a clearing, he heard another helicopter. He saw it retreating and tried to chase it. He made it about one step and then fell into a clump because, as I said, his knee was shattered. The helicopter came back, though, and he waved his orange rain poncho this time. He cried as it came close enough for the pilots to give him a thumbs up. My whole thought was to stay calm, and I've got to find a way to get found. It's after the fact when they found me that all the emotion hit me, he said later. He had intended to climb the tallest peaks in Maine, as well as New Hampshire and Vermont, before heading home to Ohio, his friend Rick Homan told the Associated Press. Despite the fact that Hayes fell short of his vacation goal, he was thankful to be alive and eager to share his mistakes in hopes that others would learn from them, the Associated Press said. You know, if only he learned from the mistakes of the 70 or so years before him. Don't leave the trail. I learned my lesson the hard no way. No shit. I made a stupid decision, he said from his bed in Eastern Maine Medical Center in Bangor. How old was he? 41. Oh, so he wasn't young. Okay. I made a stupid decision. There's no other way to describe it. Although mm-hmm. 41, you're still in good shape, you know? No, I mean, yeah, but I thought he was like young and dumb. Right, like a 23-year-old or something. Like Michael Tilly, who was hoping he'd come across some fishermen. (laughs) Another story related to the 1963 tragedy is stranger and more intriguing and could be its own episode, though I'll make it brief here. After Margaret's body was found in 1964, Katahdin was in the news. It was getting more publicity than it ever had before, and people started showing up. This included Arthur Plourd and Roger Hildreth. At the end of April 1964, Arthur Plourd was having a drink in Lowell, Mass. It doesn't really say in any of the stories I can find, but I get the feeling he was a little down on his luck. There he met Roger Hildreth, 54, described as a prominent real estate developer, also from Lowell. Hmm. As the two got to talking, Hildreth asked Plourd if he wanted to sign on as his chauffeur for a drive to Canada. Plourd said sure. They went to Canada, Montreal, I think, and returned to Lowell on May 2nd, just as the news about Margaret being found was hitting the papers. So Hildreth suggested the two take a ride up to Maine. Plourd said sure, and they got into Hildreth's 1961 station wagon or compact car, depending on which story you read, and headed up 95. They spent the night in Booth Bay Harbor that Wednesday. Then the next day, they went to Portland, where they took the ferry to Peaks Island. On the ferry, weirdly... The two talked to Portland police detective Fernando Giabi, who said later that Hildreth seemed tired and tense and told him he'd come to Maine to relax. Hildreth said they'd planned to return to Lowell that night, Thursday, but instead they drove up to Millinocket late that day. 
They got a bite to eat in Millinocket, then pulled into Roaring Brook campgrounds at about 1230 in the morning. The two went to sleep in the car, and at about 5 a.m., Hildreth got up, grabbed a pair of ski boots that were in the car, and a mesh bag that had canned food, candy bars, soda pop, and sandwiches, and told Plord he was going up the mountain to see the sunrise. Plord went back to sleep. When he woke up around 9 a.m., Hildreth still wasn't back, and there was a note on the dashboard that said either wait for me or I'll be back, depending on which newspaper you read. And the implication is he left the note when he left at five o'clock yeah. and come back and leave the note. So Plourd went out and walked around a little looking for Hildreth to see where he was and if he'd returned. He couldn't find him, but he did run into park ranger Laurel Bouchard, Ralph Heath's replacement at Chimney Pond, who had hmm. hiked down to Roaring Brook. Plourd told Bouchard that Hildreth was missing and thought he'd gone up the mountain to see the sunrise. So the two started looking around. Bouchard hadn't seen anyone or passed anyone on the trail. Bouchard went on his own after he implored looked around a little farther up the trail looking for him, but he didn't see any footprints. It was May. There was still snow in some places and the rest was very muddy and he expected to see footprints, but he didn't. Hildreth was wearing light clothes and dress shoes, not hmm. suited for that time of year in that part of Maine. So it's not weird. clear. I know it's not clear what he intended to do with the ski boots I don't know what they were like in 1963, but if they're anything like they are today or even 20 or 30 years ago, you can't walk in them. So I'm not sure why he took them with him or if they were some other kind of boots and the newspaper stories at the time just got it wrong. And so the search began. They tried everything, including bloodhounds, but the dogs couldn't pick up a scent or find him. Five days into the search, it wasn't only wardens, rangers, mountain climbers, and others that were looking. Plord's story seemed kind of hinky, so the Maine State Police Bureau of Investigation got involved, too. State police impounded the white station wagon or compact car. Whichever. <laughs> whichever. Which still had Hildreth's personal papers, including bank account stuff and more in it. A Boston Globe story five days after Hildreth disappeared said that Hildreth had planned to pick up his father, Westford Town Clerk, Charles Hildreth, and drive him to a dedication of a new center at Dartmouth College. It didn't say when. I assume they meant that weekend that he was supposed to be there yeah. that weekend. It's just kind of hanging out there. Westford is just west of Lowell, but I guess the implication is that Hildreth needed to be back in town for the weekend. Stories about the search, at least on newspapers.com, end after that. His name comes up in the BDN one more time in 1964 when a hunter named Melvin Elberly, who'd been missing for four days, walked into the Roaring Brook campground miles from where he'd been hunting. The story mentioned that Hildreth had not been found. Hildreth's skeletal remains were found the Sunday of Memorial Day weekend in 1965 by hiker Sulo Simela 9 of Hudson, Massachusetts, who was camping at Chimney Pond with his older brothers and some friends. The remains were in the upper basin, about three miles from where Hildreth had left Roaring Brook campground and about a thousand feet off the trail, between Roaring Brook and Chimney Pond. Hildreth's body or skeleton was face down behind a log about 15 feet from Upper Basin Pond in what rangers described as a very rough area. The kids were there because they'd seen a moose with two calves and were following it, trying to get a photo. Uh. The medical examiner could find no evidence of foul play, which at that point would be broken bones, fractured skull, or for instance, if somebody had stabbed a him. A bullet was, hole you know, in straight skull. Arms, right. <laughs> <laughs> so determined the cause of death unknown, but said it, it seemed that he probably died of the elements, not foul play. They were able to identify his remains through stuff they found in the pockets that had his name on him. Plord had been a suspect in Hildreth's death until his body was found. 
then it was determined the weird story he told was actually true. I know. If I were a cop, I would have thought, okay, you killed him in Booth Bay and then you drove up here to right. concoct a story. But it was actually bolstered by that, you know, by that happenstance of meeting that cop, that Portland cop on the Peak Island Ferry, who they talked to and Hildreth told him, you know, what they were doing what was which is very weird i want to know more rangers also said at the time that with the margaret ivasick and roger heath's desk and particularly their bodies being found at this point roger hadn't been found yet but margaret's had been found just a couple weeks before more people were coming to baxter without being prepared for it kind of (sighs) kind of ironic because they're not really getting the whole message you know, know about how dangerous it can be there's a lot more i can say about all of this but this has already been a long episode and every death in baxter would be uh an episode search and rescue is more sophisticated than ever but people still die in baxter the most recent two were on katahdin in separate incidents in october 2020 on indigenous people's weekend a lot of the rules and regulations are the same so are people The ultimate responsibility is up to anyone who heads out into the wilderness, which Baxter certainly is, and people need to realize it. In 2022, unlike 1846 or 1963 or 1983, there's no excuse for not knowing what it's like, how to prepare, and what the rules are. If you don't like the rules and don't like it, don't go. And I'll give Thoreau, who helped start all this, the final word. He said of the area around Katahdin, This was that earth of which we have heard, made out of chaos and old night. Here was no man's garden, but the unhanceled globe. It was not lawn, nor pasture, nor mead, nor woodland, nor lay, nor arable, nor wasteland. It was the fresh and natural surface of the planet earth, as it was made forever and ever, to be the dwelling of man, we say, so nature made it, and man may use it, if he can. Ooh, very nice. So I was originally just going to do the Margaret Ivasick Ralph Heath one. And then I remembered Jesse Hoover and thought she deserved this. Just so sad. That's just so sad. And then when I was researching Margaret, I came across Roger Hildreth, who I'd read about years ago. And that's a whole weird story. And I have a theory. He was having some kind of crisis in his life. And I don't think he committed suicide, but I think he didn't want to go home and he was at loose ends. I don't know why he wondered about that too. Like if he was having some kind of psychological. And I don't think he necessarily walked off to die, but I also don't think he was taking care of himself. I think he didn't want to go home. There was something going on with him. Maybe he was gay. Who knows? Well, I wondered if those, if they were. Yeah, I wondered if there was more to it. It's hard to tell from 1963 news stories. It's just weird that he would have taken him on as his chauffeur. But I love Baxter Park. I do get frustrated when I hear people bitch about the rules because it's like they're totally missing. It's like, don't go. There's plenty of campgrounds that you can do all sorts of crap at. Right, right. It's like people feel like that they have a right to do whatever it is they want to do. And if somebody isn't going to let them do it, it, then there's something wrong. Somebody And they miss the whole point of the park. If Baxter didn't have those rules, it wouldn't last. I joke about hating being outside which i kind of do but i don't mind camping but i'm like you i i do it to relax enjoy right. it i like right. having the campfire that's right. my favorite what part i like me too and and what i like about baxter is since there's no cell service no internet or anything you. you you can relax and read just, a book and 
And that's what I plan. And like, people think you have to go up there and do all the strenuous stuff. And I've done strenuous stuff, but I'm going to bring my kayak. No, that's not what I like about camping. Right. I've got a lean-to right on South Bank Branch Pond. And I'm going to, I'm bringing a couple books. I'm going to print out my manuscript so I can like read it and go over it, although it's not finished. But just have three days where I'm just by myself. I eat. I love eating the camping food. I always have bacon and eggs with maple syrup. For breakfast, my routine usually is get up early, have the bacon and eggs, maple syrup, go on a little hike, nothing far. I mean, there's a lot of hiking trails. Just like to walk. Yeah, they have a lot of nice trails. Then come back to the campground and spend the afternoon like reading and stuff. Have a campfire and drink a little wine or something and look at the stars because there's no light pollution. The night sky is spectacular. The weather's supposed to be beautiful. And mm. I'll be home here for 4th of July weekend for all the noise and mm. the constant firecrackers from the people down the road. I know. See, I like to go up and watch the fireworks on 4th of July. But what I don't like is I'm surprised they haven't started yet is the stupid firecrackers. Yeah, it's like the, what? I don't understand the people, point. Because people like to what, make things go bang. And also animals hate them. It traumatizes animals. I think of all the veterans and stuff around here with PTSD and shit. There are fireworks that don't have the, like the real big fireworks. Right. But people uh, like the boom. That don't have the boom. I like the way they look. I don't, I don't care about. I live near the worst neighbor in the history of the world. Not Mm, the people next door who are lovely, but a guy whose people will probably read about someday because he's going to go Draga. I hope he doesn't go Draga on you. Yeah, he can. But anyway. So that's my story. Not really a crime story, but that was good. I was glad Billy could weigh in. And wow, our families take, even though they don't listen to us. I know. Liz, we'll have to think of something we can interview Nikki for. Well, that's what I was thinking. But but anyway, do you have an NNW recommendation? And this is uh, not a TV show or podcast. It is actually an audio book. As I've said before, I like audio book. I have an Audible account. And so I get a credit a month for a book. And then when I run out, I listen to whatever I can. So this was one that was free. So, like some people at work listen to stuff while they're working. It's harder to focus when I'm listening to a book than it is when I'm reading a book. For me... It depends on what I'm doing, but a lot of times I can listen yeah. while I'm doing I, it. I listen while I'm... I if can, I'm doing a design, that's fine. If I'm writing something, I can't, Right, right. Obviously. I, I like listening when I'm... It um, depends on what part of your brain is When being, I'm, like, doing housework. Yeah. Driving. If you're doing something that... Like, if I'm doing something that doesn't right, involve words. Brain. Right. Um, but I can't wear earbuds because they really oh, hurt hate my ears. Yeah. I have earphones, Bluetooth ones. I thought, would that be rude? So I never did it. But then this other person I work with was doing it with her earphones. And I'm like, okay. I don't I'll think it's learn. rude. I've worked with people for years who've worn earphones. So anyways, I do sometimes at work anyway. But I downloaded this because I was on my way back from Elmira, which is a long trip. And I was like, I don't feel like listening to a podcast. I'd like something, a book. Right. The author is Lisa Jewell. It's spelled with two L's, Jewel. It was called And Then She Was Gone. And there are other books with that title. So, Mm. uh, because it's not that. I should give it for 
not fresh, uh, take some points off well, of the I title. Know. Like I've done before when I do audiobooks, I'm reviewing the audio version. Okay. The audible one. Right. So I'll talk about the book itself, but also about the performance because it matters. I'll just give a synopsis. It's about a girl, a 15-year-old girl that, that leaves to go study at the library and she never comes home. Mm. And so it goes back and forth. There are a lot I'll of talk- books about missing women and girls. Well, there are a lot of missing women. But I'll talk about the way the storytelling goes. It goes back and forth time-wise from present to 10 years ago. And it also has a lot of points of view. It's kind of tricky. So I'll talk about that in my NNW. So first of all, bad reenactments doesn't, it's not applicable. Uh, narrative cliches, n- no. I'll take off half a point because as you said, missing woman is kind of a cliche. Racial gender obtuseness, no. You could assume that everyone in it is white. Some of them might not have to be white. You know what I'm saying? They, The ones they describe, they describe the major characters. They're all white. It takes right. place in England. I'm trying to remember what part of England. Sorry for our British listeners. I can't remember. Yeah. I'm not going to take any points off for that. Lack of good visuals. Instead of visuals, I'll talk about audio. It's very good. The narrator is a woman named Helen Duff. And there, like I said, there are different points of view. There's there's the young girl, there's her mother, there's a guy, and there's another woman. I think that's it. The same narrator has to do each point of view. And she she does a good job. Missing pieces? No, not really. I would have liked the characters to be a, a little bit more a little deeper but it, it would have made the book long the author does a pretty good job in describing the people and giving them a little bit of depth inaccuracy anachronisms no uh storytelling i'm taking a point off because it's supposed to kind of be twisty you know have twists twists you didn't see coming but i kind of figured it out and i was hoping that i'd be surprised mm-hmm. more and i wasn't although uh-huh. At the same time, it was it was satisfying. It wasn't as suspenseful as it could have been. Freshness, I'm taking off half a point again because missing girl, point of view of the person that abducted her, it's kind of thing, stuff like that. Repetition, no, no points off. Beating the drum, no points off. So what I was going to say about the storytelling is she does a good job. The author does a good job. It's one of those ones where one part is first, person Um, and then other parts are not some of it is someone's diary um, she uses a lot of different devices but she does a good job see Um, i would have taken points away for narrative cliches for the diary the diary thing and also as a writer i feel like mixing first person and third person it's very hard to write a first person book i've listened to two others since then that because it's different um, points of view it's very hard to write a first-person book because the reader can only know as much as the person telling well, that's, the story. Yeah, and, but then they have different points so, of view. what I'm saying is when they mix first-person and third-person, I feel like the writer is being, I don't want to say lazy, but is not working hard enough to figure out how to tell the story in first yeah. person. Although, Either have the whole thing in third person and have a yes. strong point of view, like my mystery novels do, or do like I'm doing with the manuscript. Not that everything's about me, but I am a writer. 
that you figure it out in the first person how do i get impart this information when yes i agree with you although having said that i agree with you about that but i do think she it wasn't bad like i said before i'm not i know there are things that bother me that don't bother other people well also with audiobooks i'm less i'm less picky maybe yeah. because i'm just like oh yeah what, they weren't it. written it's more passive than actually yeah. reading yeah it's got eight points i liked it i mean i thought it was good for it kept me listening i wanted to see how it ended but it's one of those things where you want to see if you're right about your guess instead right. of being like oh how does it end oh right. my god the uh honorable mention i'll give is to so this author has a whole bunch of books on audible she's british and the, this one was british too this last one this author audible mention is kl kl slater they're thriller domestic thriller type books they're good they're good to listen to they keep me going she's not a bad writer and that's one good thing about both of these the lisa jewel and this kl slater both of them their writing is fine there's nothing about it that's because there's some books i've had to just stop reading or listening to because the writing is not good again she does the same type of thing with the different points of view it must be Mm. a thing now with these thrillers i guess it is a thing but her stories are pretty good and they hold together the thing i don't like is the somebody didn't know is the person or the both the ones i've listened to have logical endings and i'll probably listen to more of hers yeah um and hers are free on audible too so but i i am gonna start listening to laura again now that she's back on gabby yeah laura laura richards laura richards our favorite i love laura you know why i love her because she says stuff that other people are too afraid to say. Yes. And she's right. very adamant about it. Right. And she's she not shy away. She doesn't from shy talking away about from the saying, patriarchy. Yes. And also and she men. understands the context, like the whole Gabby Petito thing, the body cam yes. thing. And it's too late for us to get into a whole thing about that now. But the best thing about her is that she understands that context that other people just don't get or don't yes. want to get or aren't talking about. And I used to listen to Real Crime Profile all the time. I don't listen I don't as much listen. I can't because, listen to that. Because I used to listen to it for other I people. like Laura, but... Yeah. But yes. Now that she is crime analyst, I much prefer just listening to I her. I just listen to that. that. Yeah. I just want to say one more thing that's going to be very un... What? I can't think of any words, so maybe I shouldn't... I Unpo- my own popular opinion. I wouldn't worry about what other people think. Just say I don't. It. Um, well then why do you apologize by saying it may be unpopular don't qualify i'm not apologizing because people are gonna get pissed at me so what this whole johnny depp amber heard i'm just getting tired of the all the fawning over him i know the misogyny what no matter what type of person she is or what she did it doesn't make him perfect and not an abuser what people don't understand is he sued her for libel yeah she and said she, she was she a domestic abuse victim. She didn't even say his name. He sued her for libel. If he abused her, she didn't commit libel. And that's exactly. the bottom line. She was 23. He was twice her age. Yes, I know. I never liked him. I don't have the strong anti-Amber feelings before this that other people have. I don't read People Magazine and Us that much. And I don't know a lot about her. But whatever issues people have with her he's an abuser and i get fucking sick and tired of people who say they feel strongly against domestic violence and abuse but then when the guy is someone they like 
I know. They immediately attack the woman. And it I, doesn't matter. The bottom line is it doesn't matter how much of a bitch, how manipulative, how, oh, she hit him first. And don't tell me there's not a power differential between a man and a woman and physical abuse. It doesn't fucking matter. Exactly. He abused her. And you can just tell by those texts and shit what a what a gaslighting controlling yeah, he asshole he is. He was. And, and, I, I and I've never, like I said, I've never been a big I've and never also, been a fan of hers. He paid, I don't, he paid for yes. social media algorithms exactly. to promote anti stuff to her. Exactly. And stuff to him. exactly. So he's manipulating, he manipulating the system. Yes, the and he's system. A, and you people out there, he's manipulating you and what you see, and and you're allowing yourself to be affected. But for years, I've thought he was a an asshole. A, yes, an asshole. I've you know, it's one thing asshole. to be you have you have substance abuse problems alcohol problem whatever you have that issue it was almost like he was reveling you know he's yes. bragged i read an article about the him shit. Once, i came away thinking what an ass right the and shit. this was way before he right. was married to her right the shit men can get away with that women oh. can't being an alcoholic a drug abuser uh, violent to your partner and stuff all the stuff that women get trashed for somehow it makes the men more i don't know romantic which is ridiculous and also and maybe this is just from my young young much younger dating history i get really tired of the tortured soul men who can get away with being whiny and self-pitying and jerks and assholes because they're some kind of artistic fucking genius or whatever <laughs> so they can be some big whiny manipulative abusive baby and everybody's supposed to excuse it for them like laura pointed out too um which rankled me is he didn't even wait around to hear the verdict he oh. flew off to england and is partying and he get a big cheer and all and this it stuff. also bugged me that the pro johnny judge didn't allow the jury to hear that uh uk jury had in a similar suit had determined that he was indeed an abuser which they must have picked a jury that didn't read or anything but yeah we could talk about this all night i know but i know okay but so okay so as this drops i am off to baxter park Woo! and you will have an episode next oh time. yes i have no idea what i'm doing yep and we're slowly getting stuff on our instagram it's, it's slower bad up, but check crime and stuff instagram and we're you know follow us on instagram because we are putting stuff up there we'll put i'm gonna get some of billy's pictures from his 1983 <laughs> trip to katahdin with his buddies oh, and God. i'm gonna put them on our instagram yes so that will be fun see them and you and, can take some pictures when you're up there oh i definitely will i definitely will i'll see if i can go to if i have time i'll go to a ball bridge either maybe when i'm leaving uh, why don't you go up to the knife edge it's only a mile yeah, yeah i'm gonna go to the scenes where everybody died <laughs> and take pictures but i may take like the last spot you have to um, rappel down the um, rappel to, down the yeah. rappel Sorry. yeah i i can barely walk up the fucking stairs <laughs> you know have yeah. fun on your trip be I careful will. don't get eaten by a bear I will. well now i'm gonna be nervous there now that i've read all these harrowing stories yeah but the, i mean not like, nervous about myself because bears I'm not gonna do won't anything hurt dangerous. you no i'm not black just make sure so. you put out a lot of food for it yeah, i know put out a lot of food for donuts. them and then they'll, they'll like you when, when we were there in 1975 we were hiking on um i think it was north traveler and we saw bear sitting in a blueberry field eating blueberries oh, just like blueberries for sale yeah i was so cute i saw a bear and a cob once off the trail and i was like ah yeah. I didn't want you don't want to get them between wanna, the no. mama bear and the cub but they won't 
hurt. No, you. black bears are pretty docile. They like it when you go you... up and try to pet them and stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and when you pick up their cub, when the mother bears, <laughs> yeah. you pick up the cub and pet it. And stuff. Okay, now we're getting punchy. Oh, thank you, everybody. Especially our patrons. Yeah, thanks patrons. for listening. Yeah, our patrons. And um, uh, we'll... yeah, you can find us on <laughs> crime and stuff online.com right? right yeah okay. yeah you know what i gotta connect our instagram to that too now that we're doing instagram and you can like it we do get we have gotten a lot of it likes on facebook recently yeah we have like us on twitter too and twitter or follow yeah. us follow I mean. us and stuff yeah uh anyway okay. i guess it's time to go to bed yes okay bye. good night everybody bye bye my room is so freaking hot anyway that's why I have all my windows open. I can't open mine. One, in, one, one interesting there's thing. There's no screen. Especially with all the new people walking around in my town. One interesting thing, when I have my windows open, you know, and I'm sitting here in my living room working, I can hear what people are saying when they walk by. And so it's interesting to hear all the comments people make, like, about my yard. and About house. you. Oh, there's where that bitch lives. Oh, yeah, there's where that <laughs> fat slob who can't even mow her lawn lives. <laughs> down the neighborhood. But anyway, they're all from okay. away. They don't, they have no idea who I am or. What I'm, they're all you can tell they're they're not from here you know someday they'll know they'll say that's where that famous author lives <laughs> yep, someday, i heard what are you looking at nothing i was just looking at my fingernails okay yeah i just want to make sure uh, you're listening to me i um, am three okay. person entity what are you giving me the finger what happened to your fingernails Oh, nothing but there's ink on my fingers oh, uh, uh, boring <laughs> i'm sweating okay i'm sorry i was sticking to my chair okay okay that are you, is, is are you looking at your phone or something just no i am not okay. i am not okay. i was looking at you okay well i'm sorry if i'm being paranoid oh my god my phone is way over there okay okay fine i'm sorry i don't know why i'm but anyway now where am i <laughs> no, I, I got lost. Um, Thoreau, blah, blah, blah. His I'm just friends. worried I'm going to get ink on my face.